year 1888, during the Autumn of Terror, five women were brutally murdered in the Whitechapel district of London, England. Each body was dismembered in a way that suggested the killer had an intimate knowledge of human anatomy. The murderer was never identified, and to this day remains one of the most famous serial killers of all time. Hi, my name is Thomas, and this is Let's Talk About, a weekly podcast where I talk about things, things I like, things going on in the world, and things I want to learn more about. In my first two-parter, I will be talking about Jack the Ripper, one of the most infamous serial killers of all time. This week, I will be covering the five official victims known as the Canonical Five. Next week, I'll be discussing the letter from hell, the possible suspects, and some new DNA evidence that has come to light. Let's set the scene. The year is 1888. Whitechapel is steeped in poverty. Full of both crime and disease, parents struggled to raise their children, and two out of ten didn't make it to the age of five. The lack of resources available to people were limited, and as such, many women and girls fell into prostitution. Life was hard for women in this field. They earned only the clothes on their back, and often didn't know where their next meal was coming from. On top of that, lack of birth control often led to unorthodox abortions. All of this together made life very dangerous for these women. You can see why they were easy victims for the killer that would come to be known as Jack the Ripper. Let's talk about the victims. 3.40 a.m. on August 31st, 1888, a man by the name of Charles Cross would make his way down Bucks Row on the way to work. He would stop when he noticed a large object in front of a horse stable. After realizing that the object was in fact a human body, he wasn't sure what to do. He was shortly joined by another man on his way to work. Together, the two men would move the body into the doorway, prop her up and fix her skirt, and continue on their way to work telling the first constable they saw what had happened. Cross had been quoted as saying, She looks to me to be either dead or drunk, but for my part, I think she is dead. If the two men had been able to see properly, there wouldn't have been any doubt that she was, in fact, murdered. Her name was Marianne Nichols. She was born August 26, 1845, and had just celebrated her birthday. Marianne had led a difficult life in the seven years before. Her marriage of 24 years had ended when her husband had apparently been infatuated by a neighbor. Marianne would go on a spiral, starting with alcoholism. She would bounce from different infirmaries before finally sleeping on the cold ground in Trafalgar Square, and eventually turning to prostitution. It was her love of the drink that would be her downfall. At 2.30 a.m. on the morning of August 31st, she was drunk on the street, and had claimed that she'd made enough three times over for a bed that night, but had drunk it all away. Determined to make enough for a bed once more, Marianne Nichols would never be seen alive again. Shortly after the two men left the body, Constable John Neal was doing his morning checks when he came across the corpse. When the constable shined the lantern onto her face, he noticed that her eyes were wide open and lifeless. A second constable named John Fane joined him moments later, and with the light from both lanterns, they noticed that her throat had been slit so deep that she had almost been completely decapitated. A doctor was summoned and deduced that she had only been dead for approximately 30 minutes. But John Neal had been in the area moments before the body was discovered and claimed to not have heard anything. The body was moved to the mortuary and police canvassed the area asking anybody if they had heard or noticed anything, but nobody had. It was almost as if the murderer had vanished into thin air. After the body had been removed from the scene, John Thane had noticed that the blood coming from her neck wasn't a lot, but was about the volume of two wine glasses. It was then noticed that the back of her dress was completely covered in congealed blood. When the clothing was removed for her autopsy, it was discovered that below her clothes lay a much more gruesome seam. Her abdomen had been slashed in a long, jagged cut, exposing her internal organs, along with several other stab wounds to the abdomen in a downward motion. 
The complete autopsy has been lost, but we do have some surviving notes, and a summary of the body is as follows. Her throat had been cut from left to right, two distinct cuts being on the left side, the windpipe, gullet, and spinal cord being cut through, a bruise apparently of a thumb being on the right lower jaw, also one on the left cheek. The abdomen had been cut open from center of bottom of ribs along right side, under pelvis to left stomach. The omentum, or coating of the stomach, was also cut in several places, and two small stab wounds on private parts, all apparently done with a strong-bladed knife. Supposed to have been done by a left-handed person, death being almost instantaneous. She was buried on September 6, 1888, at London Cemetery. Two days after Mary Ann Nichols was buried, a second body was discovered at about 6 a.m. by John Davis, a resident of 29 Hanbury Street. He opened his back door and was greeted by a horrible sight. It was the body of 47-year-old Annie Chapman. Her head had been turned upwards and her clothes had been tugged above her waist. She had a handkerchief tied around her throat. Her face and hands had been covered in blood. Her arms raised and bent, giving the impression that she had been fighting for her life. John Davis went to the police, and moments later, Inspector Joseph Handler was heading to the crime scene. Joseph Handler blocked up the area and sent for a doctor. When Dr. Baxter Phillips arrived at 6.30 a.m., he only needed a single look at the body to know that Annie Chapman was beyond saving. His testimony is as follows. The left arm was placed across the left breast, the legs drawn up, the feet resting on the ground, and the knees turned outwards. The face was swollen and turned on the right side. The tongue protruded between the front teeth, but not beyond the lips. The tongue was evidently much swollen. The front teeth were perfect as far as the first molar, top and bottom, and very fine teeth they were. The body was terribly mutilated. The stiffness of the limbs was not marked, but was evidently commencing. He noticed that the throat was dissevered deeply, but the incisions through the skin were jagged and tight-reached around the neck. On the wooden paling between the yard in question and the neck smears of blood corresponding to where the head of the deceased lay were to be seen. They were about 14 inches from the ground and immediately above the part where the blood from the neck lay. The body was taken to a mortuary where a post-mortem would be conducted. It would then be discovered that her womb had been surgically removed and taken by the killer. Annie was buried on September 14, 1888 in the city of London Cemetery. Three weeks after the murder of Annie Chapman, the murderer would go on to commit one of their most risky crimes. They would commit two murders within the span of an hour. Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes. Burner Street was located just off Commercial Street, the location of the murder of Annie Chapman. On this street was a club called the International Working Men's Educational Club. The front door of the club opened into the street, but the back door opened into a gated yard that was often left unlocked. It was at this location at 1 a.m. on September 30th that Louis Deemschitz discovered the body of Elizabeth Stride. Louis pulled his pony into the alleyway. When his pony moved to the left, he got down to investigate and immediately recognized the figure of a woman. Louis ran to the club to get some help and went out to investigate further with a tailor by the name of Isaac Kozbrodsky. When they used a candle to light up the area, they discovered a pool of blood beside her face. Two constables were brought to the scene to investigate the body. Elizabeth Stride's case is possibly the most intriguing of the five, as there are several eyewitnesses of what could have been a lead-up to the murder. The first set of witnesses were two laborers who claimed to have seen Elizabeth Stride at around 11 p.m. as they were going into a pub. She was in the company of a man who was approximately 5 foot 5 with a thick black mustache. 
He was wearing a coat and had on a billycock hat. The two were shamelessly hugging and kissing near the doorway to the pub, but then the couple suddenly left the area unexpectedly. About 45 minutes later, a man named William Marshall was standing on his doorstep. Across the street, he spotted Stride talking to a man. He claimed that the man was stout and approximately 5'6", wearing a black coat, dark trousers, and a cap that was something like a sailor would wear. He heard the man say, You would say anything but your prayers, to which the woman replied by laughing. The man appeared to be educated and looked like a clerk. At around 12.35 a.m., Constable William Smith spotted Elizabeth across the street from the club that she was found at. She was with a man who William described as having a dark complexion, big dark mustache, wearing a coat with dark trousers, and carried a parcel wrapped in newspaper. Around 10 minutes later, a man named Israel Schwartz was turning onto Burner Street. He was across the street from where Elizabeth's corpse would be found. He saw a man. He watched as the man threw the woman to the ground. When he crossed the street, he heard a man yell, Lipsky. Schwartz began to walk away, but noticed the second man was following him, so he ran. Israel Schwartz would go on later to identify the body of Elizabeth Stride as the woman he had seen that night. There were some other interesting aspects to the murder of Elizabeth Stride as well. The first was that her abdomen showed no signs of mutilation. The second was despite the fact that every other body showed signs of strangulation, her body didn't. Elizabeth was found with two pocket handkerchiefs, a thimble, and a piece of wool attached to a card. A red flower was pinned to her dark jacket. She was also clutching a package of caucus, which is similar to a breath mint. It's to be noted that they were still in the package and not scattered about as they would have been if she had been knocked down. Elizabeth Stride was laid to rest on the 6th of October. None of her family was available to bury her, so the undertaker paid for a small funeral with donations from the church. Twelve minutes away from where Elizabeth was found was a large square that during the day was full of people conducting business, but at night was vacant as very few people lived in the houses surrounding it. Most of these people were in bed before the second murder occurred. At approximately 1.30 a.m., Constable Watkins was walking past the square doing his rounds. While he wasn't in it, he was close enough to see into it and hear anything that would have been happening inside. Fifteen minutes later, Walken was completing his rounds and walked through the square. He lifted his lamp to cast a glow and discovered Catherine Eddowes lying on her back with her skirt pulled up above her waist. Just like the other victims, her throat had been slit and her torso had been cut up. This time, however, she had been disemboweled and her intestines were in a pile beside her. Watkins alerted the other constables in the area. Catherine's body had been mutilated worse than any victim before her. Her intestines were placed over her right shoulder and had been cut, releasing fecal matter. Approximately two feet of intestines had been cut out and placed between Catherine's body and left arm. The victims before this point had been surgically cut with precision, but Catherine's cuts were jagged and rushed, almost as if the killer was in a hurry. Catherine also had her face mutilated. A triangular flap of skin had been removed from each cheek with the tips pointing towards her eyes. Upon investigating her internal organs, her left kidney was missing, while her right kidney was pale and bloodless. Her uterus had also been removed, except for a stump about a quarter of an inch. While everybody else had quiet funerals, Catherine's funeral had the entire city come out. The procession took her through the city streets and eventually to the London Cemetery, where she was buried close to Marianne Nichols. The final murder in the Autumn of Terror was a woman named Mary Jean Kelly. Her murder, much like the two before her, was a little different. While looking over his books, John McCarthy noticed that his tenant, Mary Jane Kelly, hadn't paid her rent in six weeks. He decided that it was finally time to collect the bills and sent his assistant, Thomas Boyer, to collect it. 
when Thomas went to the door, he knocked twice to no answer. After allowing himself into the room, he noticed two things. The first was the two pieces of meat on the bedside table. The second was the mangled and disfigured corpse of Mary Jane Kelly. Mary's body was completely nude and lying in the middle of the bed. She was inclined to the left, with her head resting on her left cheek. Her right arm had been partially removed, and her legs were spread wide and placed at right angles. As with the past victims, her intestines had been removed, her organs were piled to the right of her body, her uterus, kidney, and one breast were placed beneath her head. Her left lung was torn out and her heart was missing. She had also had pieces of flesh removed from her abdomen and thighs. They were placed on the bedside table. These were the two pieces of meat that Thomas had first noticed. Mary was laid to rest in the Roman Catholic Cemetery at Laystone on November 19, 1888. And that would be the end of the Autumn of Terror. Thank you so much for listening, you guys. Please write and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. You can send me an email at letstalkaboutpod at outlook.com. Follow my Instagram at talkaboutpod. And stay tuned for part two next week when I talk about the letter from hell, the suspects, and the new DNA evidence. My name is Thomas, and this has been Let's Talk About. Hey everybody, so sorry I forgot to do this. My recommendation this week is 12 Angry Men. It's a movie done in 1957 and stars just an absolutely incredible cast of actors. It's about a jury attempting to decide whether or not to convict a man uh, in court. It's absolutely brilliant. One of my, my all-time favorite movies. Definitely worth a watch. All right. Thanks, guys.